I look forward to these Saturdays so much. Um, I think Satan does too because he really likes to get all up in my business. Like, <laughs> and the days leading up to it, yesterday as I was, my husband and I are adopting and yesterday's eight, yesterday as I, at some point I'll tell you the story, I'll work it in because it's all so God. But um, yesterday as I was yelling at him, you know, then you can take all the calls and you can deal with the lawyers. Why don't you take all that? And I'm just done, you know? I was like, what is happening here? Oh, it's a B&B tomorrow. And um, fortunately, well, this is not working to clean my glasses. Fortunately, um, because my husband and I have a really great relationship, those types of things don't last too long. And we figure out what's happening and we get through it really fast. But Satan really um, likes to have fun when I'm going to have a B&B. And I'm learning. I actually put it on my calendar next month the day before B&B, expect attack. So we can just be, all right, get up in the morning. I rebuke Satan, no attack on me today. Thank you so much in Jesus' name. So it'll be good. So has anybody here ever expected God to move in a very specific way to accomplish something? Um, and he doesn't do things at all how you planned, right? You even like had your PowerPoint presentation ready. You're like, look, look at the statistics. This is really going to be the best way to go. I've got pros, I've got cons. The pro side is so heavy, Lord. Like, this really is going to be the best way to go. Um, when I was a kid, and really up through college, this is how I handled my parents with things that I wanted to do. I would, I would seriously point them into the logical direction, which is what I wanted. I would have a list of pros, a list of cons. I would come to them very maturely. I've thought about this, Mom and Dad going to this concert, staying on the college campus through summer, you know, like this, these are the things that would really be great. There's a couple cons, you had to throw those in there so they knew that you were responsible, but then you'd really heavy out the pros and um, a lot of times I would get things to go the way that I wanted. My sister called it manipulative, but <laughs> I called it the persuasive, you know, like a salesperson. So I was like, whatever, whatever, tomato, tomato. Um, so this morning I'm going to be talking about Naaman, and Naaman was a man who had created in his mind a pretty clear picture of something God was going to do for him, and uh, it didn't really turn out how he had pictured it. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 5, and if you can, I love hearing Bible pages turn. If you can bring your Bible, great. If not, grab one from the back. It's just, you know, maybe it takes me back to my Bible drill days in elementary school. I never did good in those. Um, 2 Kings chapter 5, starting in verse 1, and I'm just going to read you the story, and then we're going to learn a little bit more about it. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. This is actually Syria, where Naaman was. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was, or wait, let me go back. Yahweh had given victory to Aram because that's all uppercase Lord. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, 
and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, 10 sets of clothing. And the letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter I am sending you my servant Naaman, so that you may cure him of his leprosy. He sends this to the king in Israel. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? Like, why me? I'm just a king. Look, he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. He thinks he wants to start up a fight. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me. He will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to him. Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me, stand, call on the name of Yahweh his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, Wash, be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before them and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So Naaman was a powerful and highly respected man. He was commander of the Syrian army, he had a wife, he had servants, or slaves, really. Servant is a fancy word for slaves. And when he made a request of the king, he was given what would be today millions of dollars worth of gold and silver to make his wish come true, to be healed. Naaman's life was great, favored even, except for one thing, he had leprosy. When we hear the word leprosy, we often picture the disease where like fingers and toes go missing, right? Like that type of leprosy. This kind of leprosy, it's a disease of the nervous system and bacteria attacks the nerves until the nerves no longer feel anything. And the person cannot feel any physical pain. Today, that leprosy is called Hansen's disease. The biggest problem with this disfiguring disease is that a person is unable to feel pain. So you step on something that cuts your foot, you don't feel it. 
Then you walk around outside, you walk around, there's no pain, it starts to get infected, there's no pain, starts to get gangrenous, there's no pain, and then that's when you start having problems with having to remove parts. They just don't feel pain. A bee sting, a paper cut, um, they don't feel it, so they don't know to fix it. I read this quote by a leprosy physician named Paul Brand that um, really, it really struck me, and I think there's a lot of layers, and I could probably talk for a long time just on this. He said, I cannot think of a greater gift that I can give my leprosy patients than pain. He couldn't think of a greater gift he could give them than pain, which sounds so backwards to us, right? It's so interesting. We want to run from pain. We want nothing to do with pain. But there are times that pain can alert us to a problem that needs our attention. Physical pain, like a pulled muscle, can tell you, hey, you need to change your workout at the gym, right? If you do that kind of stuff. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> Tells me I shouldn't have reached to grab that box of cookies in the pantry, you know? Um, <laughs> A pain in our foot says, I better see if I stepped in something or on something. A pain in our ears. Your children, you get that, and you're like, oh, there's an infection. So we know that. What about pain in our hearts? When I was in seminary and dating the verbally and emotionally abusive man of God, my heart hurt all the time. My self-worth was bruised. Um, I just was battered emotionally uh, inside. That should have told me something was very wrong, right? That should have told me that something needed to be removed from the situation or someone had to be extracted out of the situation and kicked to the curb. Right? Can I get an amen? Anybody ever have that boy that you're like, I'm done. You're going, you know? Um, in some ways, pain is important. I mean, especially just scientifically, physiologically, pain has a function and is necessary. Biblical leprosy had a much broader definition than how we know leprosy today through Hansen's disease. The Hebrew word tsara included a variety of ailments. Really, if you got a little scaly, skinny part in anybody like 45, 50, 60, you start getting these little scaly things and you're like, what is that, lotion? Any sort of scaly blemish, they'll go tsara, especially if it starts to spread at all. That's tsara. If your leather starts to rot and spread, that's tsara. If you get some mold in your house and it's spreading, that's tsara. They all fell under this word. Well, so you have this broad view of tsara. In the third century BC, 72 Jewish scholars were asked by the great king of Egypt to translate the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, from Biblical Hebrew into Greek. And it's been told that he placed these 72 scholars into 72 individual chambers. They, did, they didn't see each other, so he placed them into these 72 chambers. 
and he peeks his head into each room and he says, write for me the Torah of Moses, your teacher, and then backs out. So they all get that same instruction. And it has been said, even from the historian Josephus, that God put it in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the others did. Okay? But in this translation, the term tsara that we know is broad was translated into the Greek lepra, which is not broad. Lepra is the highly contagious infectious disease of the skin. So our Bibles put leprosy there. And so we assume leprosy has this one meaning um, when it doesn't. So for the Israelites, tsara is broad. Um, and it was seen as a metaphor for sin because of the way it spread. It's something that spreads across the body, something dark that spreads across your home, a blemish, an infection, just like sin spreads, tsara spreads. That's one of the reasons why it was treated so, so strictly in scripture, because it was like a picture of sin. Sin and leprosy had a few things in common. Number one, both spread across the body. Both ostracize the person from fellowship because when you're sinning, you like to be in the dark. You don't want to be in the light with your friends, right? When I was a secret smoker uh, years and years ago, when people wanted to ride somewhere, I would say, no, no, and I would go by myself so I could smoke in the car, and they didn't know I smoked. It ostracized me. It kept me from fellowship. Both had to be dealt with at the temple and involved the use of sacrifice and blood. The leprous person would have to come and have blood sprinkled on him from an animal and be at the door of the temple. And as we know, our sin had to be dealt with with blood and sacrifice. So they were set up to be very closely paralleled. In the New Testament, when Jesus appears to bring forgiveness and deliverance from sin, he gives his followers a very clear picture of what that looks like by healing the lepers the ones who have the mass that spreads just like sin. He touches them, he heals them, and leprosy symbolized the danger of spreading sin. And Jesus knew the metaphor that he was actually bringing to life by doing that. Now in Naaman's case, we have a significant detail about the leprosy that he had. In the last verse of chapter five, Elisha's servant is cursed with Naaman's leprosy because he was very deceitful, he was very greedy, he actually chased after Naaman and his men and said, oh, my king actually wants, the prophet actually wants some gold and actually wants some clothes and, you know, and just went behind his back. So when he gets back, he's cursed with, oh, that's all right. He's cursed with, with Naaman's leprosy, okay? Now, I just want to say, if you're working for a prophet, you just probably don't want to lie to him. You probably don't want to do that because I have a feeling he's going to know. And so um, it's a bad idea. So he gets cursed with Naaman's leprosy. But it says, The leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper as white as snow. That's an interesting detail that we need to look at, as white as snow. Our modern-day diagnosis of leprosy, Hansen's disease, doesn't make someone's skin turn white. In fact, this, the, the Hansen's disease with the damaged nerve endings didn't come into ancient Israel until 500 years after Naaman's story. 
It came by like Alexander the Great or something. Archaeologists haven't found bodies that look ravaged from Hansen's disease around that time at all. So it probably wasn't even happening, that type of leprosy that we picture during Naaman's, when Naaman was there. It's possible that Naaman had an altogether different type of disease that fell under this umbrella of Tsara. The widest snow reference actually points to a disease more like leukoderma or vitiligo, which is characterized by bright white spots where the hairs also become white, which in, in Leviticus, when they're dealing with this, they say, and if the hair has become white, it even talks about it, okay? The patches can enlarge and cover the entire body. So for example, these people under Levitical law would be considered leprous. He would have leprosy to them. And their clothes would have to be torn and they would have to stay unclean as they moved about because they had a spot that spread. And that was Tsara. All skin-related issues were the same, okay? If they spread, it was a metaphor for sin, you're going to have to deal with it and put it out, just like sin should be put out. This isn't the first time in Scripture we've come across this idea of someone being made white as snow. Do you remember when Moses had to go to Pharaoh and he was afraid Pharaoh wasn't going to believe him and, and who he said he was? And God's like, okay, see your staff, throw it down, turns into a snake, pick it up by the tail, turns back into a staff. Okay, if Pharaoh doesn't believe that I sent you with that little trick, he's definitely going to believe this one. Put your hand in your robe and then pull it out. Well, he pulls out his hand, and it is leprous, as white as snow. And then he puts it back in, and he brings it back out, and it's restored like the rest of his flesh. In Numbers, Miriam is struck with leprosy, as white as snow, for bad-mouthing Moses, for marrying a foreigner, for marrying a Cushite. And her brother Aaron pleads with God, let her not be as one dead, just like the dead were considered unclean, someone who was white like this looked like the dead. It was, it was scary to them, and they were feared to be close to dead. And on a side note here, this clearly shows us that God hates gossip and bad-mouthing of our pastors and our leaders. Miriam and her brother just killing it with Moses, putting him down. Is my thing working? There we go. How can, you know, what is he doing? And God struck her with leprosy because he was like, you will not talk against the Lord's anointed. So let's remember that um, to always be gracious, be praying for our leaders and not talking against them. So the grayish white skin of the dead compared to the white skin of a leukoderma or vitiligo victim was a terror, especially to those with darker skin at the time. So Naaman quite possibly had a form of tsara like this one. Um, his skin was turning white. Now he wasn't bound by the laws in Leviticus. He wasn't an Israelite. He was from Syria. Um, so he didn't have to do unclean and all that kind of stuff. His clothes weren't torn. He was married. He was living with his family. Um, he lived a fairly, fairly normal life and was a strong warrior, which also shows us he wasn't disfigured and having problems in that way. 
It's possible that he'd exhausted all of his finances and all of his resources to find healing, find every doctor, find every magician, anybody to change what was happening to him. It's also possible his wife's slave girl was the first to bring it up. Maybe she'd heard him, you know, whispering to his wife about it's getting, it's spreading farther. Like, I don't know what's happening. Maybe she'd notice his men kind of talking behind his back about it. People were wondering, is he sick? Is he contagious? The change in appearance caused by vitiligo would have affected Naaman's psychological state. Even if he wasn't hurting in his body, it would have impacted him mentally. People with this disorder experience emotional stress, especially if it's showing on visible parts of their body, their face, their hands, their feet. They're often verbally abused, glared at. Some uh, attempt to commit suicide because of the social stigma that it, it is on them. So maybe it was causing tensions with his men as white patches sort of started to creep up his neck or down his hands or onto his feet like, Naaman, what, what is that down there? You know, what is going on with you? We don't know exactly what he was dealing with, but his servant girl saw it and offered a solution from her own region. Now this servant girl had been captured during a Syrian raid. And sometimes the Bible can be written where it sounds almost poetic, but it was ugly. She was a slave. It means she was ripped out of her parents' arms, ripped out of her home. Her family may have been killed or sold as slaves. She was stolen from her hometown, brought to a new town, possibly put up on an auction block, and paid for to be a slave in Naaman's home. She could have responded with anger and hatred, and no one would blame her for it, right? But she knew Yahweh. She knew Yahweh, and God was working something out. This young girl could have become so bitter and so resentful because of her circumstances, but she didn't let herself fall into that trap. Bitterness and resentment get you nowhere. It gets you nowhere. It's like fake currency. It has no value. It can't buy you anything. It can't buy you freedom. It can't buy you time back. It can't buy you reuse in your life or with that person. It can't change those things. If you have bitterness and resentment, you ha it's just time to let it go. And when I was writing this, I really felt like the Holy Spirit said, there is somebody here that's going to hear this and they know it's for them. It's just time to let it go. It's time to let go of the bitterness because it's not helping you and it's not changing the situation. It wastes time that could be used for growth, healing, purpose. It robs you of God being able to move you forward in your life. So if that's you, just today, choose to let it go. Let it go. Out of the very place of her pain, her country where she was ripped from her family, this little girl was about to bring someone a great gift of healing. 
out of the place of her pain, she was about to bring someone a great gift of healing. Never underestimate the power of your painful experience to bring healing to someone else. God can redeem every one of our painful experiences. And if we're willing to go back there, we can pour healing out of that place for someone else. I think he loves to do that. That's redemption. It seems the servant girl be became fond of Naaman and his wife, so it's likely they had been very kind to her. His name actually means gracious and delightful, and as we know from studying Yahweh, that names really were uh, character traits of the person. Gracious and delightful. So when Naaman developed leprosy, the young servant girl became concerned for him, and as his despair sort of started to increase, his anxiety about it, and maybe starting to think about a cure, the girl sincerely wanted to help him. When he heard that there was someone that could heal him, he went. And sometimes that first step is the hardest to take to healing. I was just talking to someone this morning, and, you know, sometimes we can be stubborn. Someone can tell us there's a healing right there. You can go there and find healing, and... People don't want to go. People don't want to go. When I shared one time about a girl that was healed completely of celiac disease at my friend's ministry, they loved to pray for healing and all that. Healed. After like eight years of celiac, completely healed. And I tell people, that's where she got healed. People don't run there and go say, oh, will you pray for me? They just, they avoid it. And it's like, okay, I'm just saying, I pointed you to where somebody could pray for you and you could maybe get healed. People get healed there all the time. But you can't force them to go, right? Sometimes that first step is the hardest step. It's scary to begin to believe and hope that things can actually change, that things can actually get better, especially that when they've been getting progressively worse for so long. And the Bible says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I have been there. I have been like heart in the ICU sick, right? Flatline, you know, like hope deferred just crushes our hearts. So sometimes we're afraid to hope. Naaman had slowly watched his skin change and get worse, and he had slowly begun to, begun to see the society and his men maybe start to look at him a little differently. So he talks to the king, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, who sends him with 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of clothing. Now this isn't so like naming can change every day, like if it was a girl. A Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I need an outfit, you know, and it's all bagged up in Ziplocs. That's not what it was. It was like royalty clothes, linen, silks. It was a gift to bring to the king of Israel. He was going to be traveling over 700 miles in chariots. And from... Damascus, up there, in the kingdom of Aram, to Samaria. That's a long journey. And he's got his chariots, and he's got things packed with gold and, and outfits. Um, it had to be quite a spectacle. He had to have a lot of his entourage with him to make that journey. That would be a very long journey. All of this wealth that the king is willing to send on Naaman's behalf shows the value that he placed on Naaman. Naaman was worth so much to the king that he would pay whatever it cost to help him, 
to make his dream come true, to be healed. And he brings the letter with him and gives it to the king. I'm sending my servant to you so that you may cure him of this incurable disease. And the king of Israel's like, hold up. This is a trick question because you are asking me to cure this warrior of an incurable disease. So it's kind of in the name that it can't be cured. You know, it, what are you at? Why are you asking me? I'm just the king. And he tears his robe in despair and anger. Who knows what else? Because he's like, he's, this is just the beginning of a fight. This is just the beginning of a war because I can't possibly heal him. So Elisha hears this is going on and sends a message to the king. Have the man come to me. I'm the one he's looking for. And it might have taken days for that sort of journey to happen. And Naaman's doubts are growing because it hasn't happened yet. Waiting can be hard for when we're waiting for God to do something, to heal something, to change something. We expect vending machine results, you know. Put in my prayer, pick out my healing, you know. Um, but even in obedience, answers can take a while. How many can attest to this? Even when you're being fully obedient, answers can take a while and may come through some bumpy roads. So upon receiving the invitation, Naaman goes with his horses and chariots and rides up with his giant entourage to the front door of Elisha's house. He's here. He knocks on the door and he waits for the magical man to appear, right? The prophet, the man, the myth, the legend. He has spent 700 miles thinking about how this was going to go down. How amazing it was going to be. He pictured it. There were probably like pyrotechnics in his imagination about it was going to be magical and amazing and things were going to happen and whirlwinds. Who knows? But he had it pictured of how, exactly how it was going to go. This is the man who can heal him. I just imagine the scene waiting, the anticipation. And then the prophet doesn't even show up. The prophet doesn't even come to the door. Instead, a servant appears at the door, probably cracks the door open because he is in Israel and you're not supposed to be near people with that, right? So he cracks open the door. Uh, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and you'll, you'll be restored, your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Okay, good day, and shuts the door. Bye-bye, <laughs> you know? And Naaman's like, what, what just happened? Like, do you not see me? Do you not see my station in life? Do you not see all these men that have come with me, all the gifts I've brought? How rude that you can't even come to the door for me. This prophet man. By the way, this is the second time a servant is used in Naaman's healing. Servants are a big part of this story. So Naaman was angry. He had very different expectations that he'd built up in his mind over the 700-mile journey. I thought, he said, by the way, ladies, we get in a lot of trouble because we have a lot of imagination. We have a big imagination, and we can imagine how our husband's going to plan Valentine's Day. <laughs> we can imagine how things are going to go with our kids. We can imagine what the family reunion's going to look like. And um, we're really good at that. And then sometimes reality meets our imagination and they don't quite match up, you know? We gotta be careful with that because he had built himself up. So 
Naaman expected Elisha would come out and stand next to him, call out on Yahweh with some special dance, I don't know, wave his hands over the spot, which the word spot just means region or the area of it. It doesn't mean like he had a one spot. Wave his hands over it and cure me of leprosy. Da, 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 da. Like, you know, it was going to be this big thing. That's what he had pictures. That's what he wanted. That's what he had expected. That's very specific. He was very specific about how it should happen. Anybody else ever get real specific about how God should do something? Right? How often does it involve him having to do something in someone else? God, I'm going to get real specific. This is what you need to do with them. You need to change their mind and their attitude on this, and then we will be good. So if you could just do that, we'll be copacetic. Everything's going to be good. Not only did Elisha not do what was expected, he didn't even come to the door. He sent his servant. And Naaman was told to wash himself seven times in the Jordan. And if he would do that, his flesh would be restored and he would be cleansed. Now right here we come back again to the parallels with sin. The word for being restored is to go back and return. Okay, your flesh will be restored, right? And it says, he would be cleansed. Well, cleansed has a couple different meanings here. To be physically cleansed of the disease, to be purified and be cleansed morally. This was more than just a bath that was going to be happening. Naaman was about to find salvation. Naaman was about to find Yahweh in this. If he could get past his pride, right? He, he's about to have some issues. Um, he did not want to go near the muddy Jordan. All right? This is a part of the Jordan. There's a lot of sediment in it, okay? Back to the country he came from, they called this river a ditch. And he probably had to ride through, ride along some of it to get here, and it was probably like, ah, oh, their water's so dirty here, you know? Because up in Damascus, he's like, there were certainly more beautiful waters available for us to use in Damascus, right? Why couldn't I just wash in our rivers? Are not Abana and Farpar rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? And they're like, ah. He's like, why could, can I just go wash in our rivers? Because they're so pretty, you know? I liken it to telling a man in Malibu that has his big Malibu beach house on the beach with the Pacific Ocean, okay, for your healing, I want you to go to this cow town called Livermore. <laughs> you're going to go to Livermore, and you're going to find this tiny library. Next to the library on a golf course, there's a pond, and there's a lot of geese in it. I want you to go to that Springtown pond and wash yourself in it seven times. I love Springtown. That's my favorite library. So Malibu Beach guy is like, what? I have the Pacific Ocean and Malibu Beach where they filmed Baywatch, you know, like, can I just wash in my beautiful ocean? Why would I have to come up here? to a town that starts with the word liver. <laughs> By the way, I'm L-Town all the way. I love Livermore. We love Livermore. Um, but it would be like that. Like, that doesn't make any sense. I live by the Pacific Ocean. Let me do that. <laughs> 
Um, so he goes away in a rage, right? Uh, anger with God's ways can keep us from moving forward when we get angry. When he doesn't do it how we plan it out for him and then we get mad, that's just the enemy. He'll make us mad. When God's just wanting us to submit and trust, don't get mad, submit and trust in him. So Naaman's servants, this is the third time servants are moving Naaman toward his healing. Without these servants, he wouldn't be finding this healing. They say, if the prophet had told you to do something harder, you would have done it. You'd be willing to do anything. So why not just, he says, wash and be cleansed. Then just, just wash and be cleansed. What's the harm? Just do it. Naaman had been prepared to do something monumental, even something expensive or dangerous. But the prophet asked for something simple. They're like, dude, just try it. We're here. We came 700 miles. Just give it a shot and see what happens. So here's kind of the funny part. I'm going to get into the Hebrew a little bit. Elisha tells him to rakats, which is probably rakats, which means wash. And it's to wash off, wash away, bathe. What Naaman does is tabal, which is dip. So he's like, fine, I will dip. You know, he's told to wash, but he's like, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to hate it and my heart's not in it, you know? Like, he won't even wash. He's just gonna go in there and do the least amount of effort possible, like when my son vacuums. <laughs> I will do it, but I do not like it, you know? And so he, he goes in and dips. Like, that's about all I can do. I will just dip, and that's just the way that it is. I picture his army coming to a stop when they reach the banks of the river as their noble and fearless leader gets down out of his chariot and undresses, revealing probably big patches of this tsara that they hadn't even seen before. His shame humbling, he, they, it's exposed for all of them to see the extent to which this had um, moved across his body. And he wades into the muddy water I think God smiled as he began to dip himself in, humbled, but being obedient. Okay, two, you know. Um, Naaman had learned obedience and his pride and his anger were washed away. And his skin became like that of when he was a young boy. It went back, it was restored, like the condition never happened like our sin never happened. New, pure, undefiled. Just like we're baptized out of our old life of sin into a new life of righteousness, Naaman is dipped into the water and out of his old condition of leprosy into a new life. So he returns with all of his attendants, his whole entourage, everything, back to Elisha's house. And Elisha meets him now. And Naaman says, now I know that there is no God in all the world except Israel. He's been converted. I know. God's miracles always lead to salvations and belief in him. They do. There is no quicker way to show someone that God loves them or that God is real than them seeing a miracle 
of God or experiencing a miracle of God. It was the same with Jesus and his disciples. People would believe upon these miracles and the demonstrations of the Spirit that they saw. In front of his entire army, Naaman confesses that Yahweh is the one true God and that there is none other. The Syrian says this. He's not ashamed to say this in front of his men. Not one can contest that he was healed when he followed the prophet of Yahweh's instructions. I would guess many men and their households began to follow Yahweh based on this encounter. The reality is, we are all like Naaman in several different ways. We can walk around with pride. We can cling to our titles, our victories, our stations in life. We all have seasons where we want to orchestrate exactly how God's going to do something, right? We all have insecurities, things we want to cover up, things we want to hide, shame, regret, abuse, things that if you could see them in the natural would be spreading on our bodies, verbal abuse that if we could see it, we would have black eyes and bruised cheeks, right? And many of us have physical sicknesses that we deal with daily. But our God, Yahweh, bids us come. Come. Come and be washed. Come and be healed. Come to the living water. Come be restored. Let the water wash away that pain. Let it wash away that hurt, that shame, that infirmity, or that past. The word baptize, when it says be baptized in the Holy Spirit, or Jesus baptized, or be baptized, is actually the word dip. Isn't that interesting? Um, so we all need to be dipped to be baptized in Jesus to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, just dipped in the power of the Spirit, dipped into Jesus. In a few minutes, I'm gonna pray for anyone here who is sick or hurting. It's not gonna be one by one. I'm not gonna wave my hands over the spot and call on, you know, do something fancy. Um, and I'm talking about people who are hurting physically or emotionally. Um, we don't need magical or mystical ritual. Um, the power isn't in the words. It's in Yahweh. The power wasn't in the water. The power wasn't in the prophet. The power wasn't in the servants. It was in Yahweh. Healing. That's where the power was, and that's where it is. I think like Naaman, sometimes we want something really magical and really mystical, and God just wanted normal. He just wanted to do it, you know? Naaman's pride was almost his undoing. He was too proud and too stubborn. He wasn't going to follow the prophet's instructions. And he would have returned home sick. Just as sick as he was with no hope. But the healing was waiting for him right there. Right there. He just had to take the step. He just needed to be obedient. Which is a reminder to us to be obedient when we feel the prompting of God when we feel him asking us to do something, that we do those things, even if it doesn't make sense to us.
or looks ridiculous like washing in the Jordan did to Naaman. Naaman had just enough faith to step into the Jordan. That's the faith he had, right? Jesus tells a crowd in the synagogue of Nazareth, there were many in Israel with leprosy, these skin issues, in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed. Not one Israelite was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. The Israelites were missing the power right in front of them. They were missing what they had, and it was right in front of them. Let's not miss that this morning. The power of Yahweh, the power of the Holy Spirit that's here, right in front of us, he's here. He's here. When I was praying about this, I felt like the Holy Spirit said, I'm going to be there, and some people are going to get healed. I think that's awesome, right? So, because I don't want to do it, it all has to be him. So Naaman had enough faith to take those wet steps. Do you have enough faith just to stand up, right? Do you have enough faith to stand up? So I'm going to ask everyone here that needs healing in any way to stand up. And now I'm going to ask you to do something that's a bit of a prophetic act, meaning you're going to do something in the natural that I believe impacts things in the spirit, okay? Um, when I count to three, I want every person just to take one step outward or forward, as in your mind's eye, you are taking that step into the Jordan, in that step of faith like Naaman took, okay? So I'm going to count to three, and I want everyone to take that step. One, two, three. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, I know that you are present. I know that you are in this room. And Yahweh, we will not leave this room and miss your power. We will not walk away and miss the healing power that is available to us. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and move in the room. Move among these women right now. You know each and every hurt. You know each and every emotional hurt in here. An abusive marriage and what she's struggling with and how he talks to her and how he treats her and how he controls her. You know that hurt. The stomach issues of the other one whose stomach is hurting and aching and twisting and she doesn't know what's wrong but her digestion is all messed up. You know that pain. You know the one who goes to the dermatologist all the time because things are always popping up that have to be dealt with. You know each and every woman in here and these women that are standing, they're standing because they're stepping into the Jordan and they're saying, okay, I want to be restored and I want to be cleansed. And so I ask in Jesus' name, I ask for healing on each and every woman in this room. I pray that diagnoses that have been spoken out would be a thing of the past. I pray that things that they couldn't do before, they'll be able to do now. I rebuke a spirit of infirmity in Jesus' name. I rebuke a spirit of death in Jesus' name. 
God, I pray that no weapon formed against these women shall prosper. I pray, God, for supernatural healing of arthritis. I pray for supernatural healing of knees. I pray for supernatural healing of things in the head. Polyps or cysts down in the female areas, I pray for healing there. God, all Naaman did was walk in and dip, and you restored him. And that's what I ask for the women this morning. Healing of body, healing of mind, healing of heart. On the cross, Amy Simple McPherson said, on the cross, Jesus took our sin, and on the whipping post, he took our infirmities, for it's by his stripes that we are healed. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice and the pain that you endured on our behalf, and we pray that you would take the infirmities, mental, physical, and psychological, out of this room like a vacuum over us to suck them out in a way forever. I claim restoration for these women, and I claim healing for these women. Miracles, miracles, miracles for these women. And my lovely friend whose husband needs healing as well, we pray for not only a miraculous healing of his body where he's completely made whole and restored, but that his faith would grow to astronomical heights and um, he would seek after you with all of his heart and know your love for him and that he, you still have plans for him in his age to make a difference for his kingdom. We just bless your name, Yahweh. We love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we need you. Continue to move around us and touch our hearts today. Because we do all this in your name and in your authority. Bless these women. Heal these women. Heal their families. Heal their marriages. Heal their relationships. We love you, Lord. Amen. Um, there are some discussion questions. We have about 10 minutes. Um, there are some discussion questions. And then the, if you signed up for the mug swap, your bags are back there um, put together by couple, by you and your mug swap partner. So when you go back, if they're back there too, ideally you can meet and say hi and, you know, and do that kind of stuff. So before you leave, I would say take 10 minutes, pick a question that you want to talk about. Obviously, you can stay later and chit chat. But, and, um, and uh, whatever one you want to discuss, do that.